All right, last chapter, we saw the preacher commend wisdom. And wisdom is the way you actually align yourself with how the universe works, we saw. Um, there's a discernible order in God's creation. And the wise man lives a life and makes decisions that brings himself into cooperation with that order. And he flourishes because he does it. Today, um, don't forget Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And it's, it's theology from below, which is very interesting because Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Genesis, Genesis, it all begins with God and his revelation. Ecclesiastes begins with what he has seen, what he has observed, and life under the sun. So it's doing theology from below. And that's why we know more than the preacher. This is important to understand. We know more than Kohala. Especially if, as we think, he is Solomon. Solomon was dragged away by pagan gods because of his many wives. And so we have a better view and grasp of reality, of God's reality, than Solomon did. However, what this book allows us to do, and I think the reason that God has allowed it to be in Scripture, is to is for God's people to feel the raw realities of life. He does not shine up the world for us. Death is real. Pain and suffering are sure to come. And Ecclesiastes almost, almost gives one an opportunity to mourn for a little before you look to Christ. So in chat, what I want to do is co cover chapters 9 and 10 today because the preacher reflects on repeated themes. And so I'm just going to gather those repeated themes together. He reflects on prudence in dealing with a king. He reflects on the delay of judgment leading to more wickedness in the world. Uh, the fact that we can't know God's hidden counsel that we're not omniscient, which is a great frustration for a lot of men. And finally, he talks about living in light of death, the certainty of death. So like I said, these are repeated themes in the book. Um, certainly, the preacher is a conflicted man. He seems to acknowledge God throughout. Uh, but at times... His frustration drives him to write, and sometimes his frustration leads him to despair. And we can join him in feeling raw realities, but where we can continue is looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. So I want to talk about three, three things today, three themes that I see in this passage today. Number one is the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. Starting in, in chapter 8. So I'm sorry, it's 8 and 9, not 9 and 10. 8 and 9. Starting in chapter 8. Uh, the first few verses, the preacher commends wisdom when dealing with a powerful king. He says, obey the king. Don't go plotting, 
theme or plotting schemes against him, obey the king, submit to him, and you won't get yourself killed. That's the, the essence of verses 1 through uh, 5. But I want to focus on verse 10. And this is where he speaks to the corrupt man. The corrupt man that has a good reputation. He says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against evil, an evil deed, is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Let's pause right there for a minute. Ecclesiastes is certain that judgment will happen, but he doesn't know how. And one of the things that frustrates him greatly is that there are corrupt people in the world who actually get away with it and die with a good name. Now, we've seen many corrupt men escape the hand of justice, unscathed, it seems, with their reputation intact. Um, one, one of the more sad examples for Christians is seeing what happened with Ravi Zacharias. Um, he was a great apologist, a great teacher of scripture, but um, not long after his death, it was found out that he was a serial adulterer and, um, and took advantage of, of women. And I think there were some rape charges against him. So this, this came out after his death, so his reputation did not remain intact, but this kind of thing happens all the time. There are people that go in and out of holy places with their reputation intact while they themselves lead secret, corrupt lives. Here's the principle he gives. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, if you're getting away with it, and if God's judgment is not coming down immediately for sin, this seems to embolden the wicked man even more to do evil. So human nature, there's something in human nature where we take advantage of the delay of judgment in every avenue of life. We usually don't care until we're found out. That's the sinful mind. And it's usually the delay of judgment that just leads man to a carefree, wanton attitude about the way they're living. I think one example of, of this on maybe a, certainly a less serious level is student loans. We took out student loans so boldly when we went to college. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many people have. And, and we were just signing on the dotted line. We didn't have to, you know, we we're going to get a job someday. Right now, I'm a 19, 20 year old in college. I'm, we're playing baseball, basketball. We're hanging out together. This is a good time, and it's all paid for. <laughs> well, we took out student loans blissfully unaware. 
well, not unaware, but just ignorant. It was not in the front of our minds that we would have to pay that back. One study found in a 2019 poll, which polled 2,200 adults uh, reporting about their financial mistakes, they found that the average participant in this poll reported taking 18.5 years to pay off their student loans, starting at 26 and ending at 45. So they are paying for the loan that they took out when they were 18, all the way to their 45. I mean, maybe some of, some of us here today are in the midst of that reality. The poll continues. But while many Americans might, to, might be student loan debt free by their 30s or your early 40s, data from studentaid.gov reveals that there are 14.2 million borrowers ages 35 to 49. So 14 million still have student loans by the time they're 49. And as many as 2.3 million student loans borrowers at 62 and older. So people are paying off student loans almost their whole life. But, but, when we signed that, the loan wasn't due. We were carefree. I think that's a perfect analogy of how the wicked man flourishes because recompense was not due at the time. Because judgment was not exacted at the time. It emboldens them to live in a carefree attitude about their sinfulness. So he trusts that God will judge. Kohelis does. In 12, verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So the preacher seems certain that judgment will come, but the problem is judgment is delayed and people take advantage of that. This is exactly, this is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.17. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. We don't see judgment. We don't see the hand of God. Peter goes on to say that they're willingly ignorant of the flood. What's the flood represent? The judgment of God. And the same God who judged the earth in a flood actually reserves the world with fire right now to be judged at the right time. So, the wicked seem to, seem to get away with evil. And their experience and observation kind of affords them comfort as they don't have to pay for the evil they've done. So, that's a word to the corrupt man. Doctrinally, 
I'd like to just draw a doctrinal thread out of this. It is given unto man once to die, and then the judgment, we're told in Scripture. Judgment, although sin has negative consequences ingrained into it, I don't want to get, I don't want to lose that fact. Foolishness leads to poverty of mind and spirit in many different ways. But ultimate judgment is reserved for the end. We, and at the end, last day. We read in Acts 17, 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but he, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So there is a fixed day in which God will bring judgment on those who have gotten away with it thus far. And certainly there is judgment at death as well. So I want to encourage you as Christians, please don't be embarrassed at judgment. Don't be embarrassed about the idea of God judging. I get the impression, and perhaps I've been guilty of this in the past as well, but I get the impression that evangelicals are sometimes want to recast the gospel message in term, in different terms. Um, and they don't want to talk about judgment at all because it seems cruel or this is something that um, churches that are mean-spirited have seized upon and really elevated in their preaching judgment and fire. And we don't want to be like that, so we don't talk about judgment. Don't do that. Talk about judgment. There's a way of, of talking about the gospel which is true, but which misses vital other truths about the end. So one way I, I've heard this done recently by a pastor, he said, you know, we're all created by God to know and love him, but we're all broken people. And we live in a broken world. But the good news is that God loves you. And if you trust him, uh, then he'll fill you with his love. And then you can live in the way that God intended you to, with justice and mercy in the world. And we'll see the world put to right. Now, in a sense, that is true. All of that's true. God loves us. You are a broken person. God did create you to love, create you to love and know Him. He certainly wants His justice in the world. But do you see how that misses out vital truths about salvation and eternity? It, it is so horizontal and and vague, and almost plays into the ideals of our modern culture. We're not broken only. We are sinners. And it's not just as we're innocent victims of our sin who, just, who got broken. You know, I think sometimes when we say we're broken people, it's a way to, to act as if we've been victimized by sin. No, you've participated in sin. I've participated in sin. And we've defied the living God. 
That needs to be, that kind of truth needs to be proclaimed a little bit more precisely, I think. And we continue to reject God if we don't believe in him and trust him and obey him. It's like sitting on God's lap and smacking him in the face. When you breathe his air, you exist in his world and you reject his commands. I, I had the great grace of speaking with my plumber two days ago who fixed my septic tank, which constantly seems to malfunction and leads to very unhappy situations in my house. Um, but I think it was orchestrated by the Lord because uh, the septic man came in, gave me the bill, and he saw me studying the Bible, and he said, what are you studying religion? I told him I'm a pastor, you know, I'm actually preparing my sermon for Sunday. And, uh, and I said, do you have any religious beliefs? Do you have a background? He said, well, actually, I'm an anti-theist, and I think religion's harmful for the world. Well, I could not have been hungrier for a conversation. <laughs> So we talked, he came in at 4 o'clock, we talked at six, till 6.30 p.m. at night. It was a blessed conversation. Um, one of the things I did not do was just constantly tell him that he's broken, that God loves him. One of the things I did was say, you are an enemy of God right now. You walk as an enemy of God, and God is not, you're not just simply going to cease to exist, you will come under judgment when you die. And I, I think that was good for him to hear that. Not a soft, wet noodle message. It's that kind of thing that, that makes a man want to listen a bit more. And this man was very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. But drawing the message back to Christ and judgment while answering apologetic questions, which I loved to do, a, a beautiful conversation about the author of the Pentateuch and errors in scripture and that Noah's Ark couldn't float and the resurrection and the problem of evil and, and all of these things. We discussed that, but drawing the message back to Christ and what you do with him and judgment if you reject him is very important. So yes, God is love, but he is also holy. And we live in a day and age where we, only, we almost want to chop God in half and talk about his attribute of love and not holiness and justice. Don't do that. Here's what Paul says. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to God's promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's how you talk to an unbeliever. Now, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Don't, don't just give him warm, a lukewarm message. Give him the actual fire that God will salt him with. And tell him not to harden his hearts. His heart. The most, the most awful thing C.S. Lewis said is when God finally says to you, Thy will be done. 
All right, so that's the, to the corrupt man. Judgment is coming. How about to the seeker? Maybe we have seekers. I hope we're all seekers in this congregation, seek knowledge. And this is a theme we've certainly seen before. Um, we are powerless to know God's ways. And so you need to live with epistemic humility. Epistemic just means epistemology is the study of how we know things. And we need humility in our approach to how we know things. So that's what I mean by epistemic humility. Hold on for a second. All right, six through nine. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 8, he says, There is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So we are subject to the times. We saw this in chapter 3. Verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain his spirit of a day over death. So he's talking about his powerlessness. He can't know the future. He can't control the day of his death. This is a fundamental truth. We're also powerless to perceive God's ways in the world. Look at verse 14. I do realize I am skipping around a bit. Bear with me. But these are a lot of repeated things, themes. And I'm trying to draw out the essence of them. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it, wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is also vanity. So we're powerless to perceive God's ways, and this fact is seen in the way that the wicked often reap what the righteous sow. And the righteous sometimes reap the outcome of what should be a, a wicked man. So we can't find out God's ways, he said. Verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. God has making, made us thinking beings. And yet, we will never pass a fragmentary knowledge of reality. One commentator says, The Creator will not let the creature be his equal. The finite human mind is unable to reach beyond the time and into eternity and see as God does. And the thing is, God does not owe us an explanation, nor does he promise us the full picture of reality on this side of eternity. And so as the people of God, we should never, we should never pretend to have complete knowledge of something. I think because we want to be bold, 
we as evangelicals believe that we need to be 100% certain about everything ever, it seems. And I don't think that's actually a helpful way to go through life. Now, we should be certain and we should cling to God's promises for sure. But what Koheleth is saying and throughout the scripture we have the ringing testimony that we do not have the fullest picture. And so, and I know I've quoted this verse a number of times, but the secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29.9. There are secret things, and they belong to the Lord. He has not revealed them to us. So we're dependent. How, what is our epistemic strategy to be dependent on God's revelation how God has revealed things to us that's how we know um, so there is good evidence for example for the existence of God the resurrection of Christ but God has not given us, and he has revealed these things to us in his word, but he has not given us all the information about everything in the world. This means that we have enough intellectual room to accept God or deny him and actually be intellectually satisfied either way. Do you realize that? Because we, don't, we haven't been given all the information, a person could accept God or deny him and find a way to be intellectually satisfied. If you're seeking God, in other words, you're likely to find him. If you're seeking to avoid God, you're likely to succeed in that as well. It's almost like God has given us a rope to crawl out of the pit of death and we could hang ourselves with that rope or crawl up to him. Here's a quote I may have read to you before by Gavin Ortland. He says, This is our situation in relation to the gospel. It is a message that concerns our infinite happiness and everlasting good of the world. It claims that our world has an author, a meaning, a struggle, and a hope. If anything ever deserved to be longed for, it is this. If anything was ever important, it is this. Are you almost convinced? Would you give anything, as would I, for it to be true? Then believe, and give yourself to that belief as you give your heart to the one you love. And in that posture, you will find certainty and you will find yourself. He is saying that at, at some point, you need the leap of faith towards the promises of God. Because he has, not, he has not paved the road to knowledge entirely. He's pointed the way in Jesus Christ. And he says, run to him. Leap to him. So, we will not know everything. This frustrates the preacher. But I think for us as Christians, we have to be epistemically humble. And know that the secret things belong to the Lord. And that faith requires a leap. And what we do... What we are is we are a people of faith seeking understanding. We do not hold God at arm's distance until we've weighed and reweighed all the evidences. We trust him based on his revelation to us. All right, the discontented person is the next 
person whom the preacher talks to now. Chapter 9. He reflects on the certainty of death for everyone. Verse 2. He says, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So, one's ethics, righteous or wicked, does not mean, does not determine whether they're going to die or not. The same event happens to all. Whether you're clean or unclean, whether you make sacrifices or not, it makes no difference whatsoever. All end up dead, the preacher says. Verse 6 is, is a very, very interesting verse. Basically, he's saying, despite all the fire of life and the vitality that we have, it's all going to be extinguished in death. Verse 6. All their love, all of their hate, their envy, have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So love has perished. All the romance of youth and marriage, he's saying. All the hate, the wars and the fighting. All the envy where people impassionately work hard to outclass other people. All of that passion, all of that romance, all of that hatred, all of that vitality, and life is extinguished at death, he's saying. Finally, he says, whether it's through the passing of time or the unpredictability of chance, death is going to fall on everyone. Verse 11, chapter 9. Again I saw under the sun the races not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. For man does not know his time. Like a fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So the race doesn't always go to the fastest person, he's saying. So I've seen sprinters tear their tendons and not finish the race. The battle does not always go to the strong. There was a man named Goliath who was the strongest, and he did not win the battle. Just like a fish gets captured in a fishing net, and just like birds get trapped in a snare, death, time and chance, gets every man. So what's, so in light of this depressing reality, what does he commend? Well, he's commending what he's commended throughout the book, and that is to enjoy God's gifts in this life. Verse 7. In an almost resigned way, 
He's saying, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He's already given you this stuff. He's already given you bread to eat, wine to drink, a wife, friends, go. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy the life, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And all your toil, which you toiled under the sun. So he, he is certainly resigned. And he's not happy about the fact that he's going to die. But he does commend enjoying the gifts God has given us. So enjoy your family and your friends. Enjoy wearing a white robe, verse 8, and having oily oil on your head is the way they would prepare for festivities during this time. And he says, enjoy your wife, the wife of your youth. To be alive is a beautiful thing. And maybe you've had those moments where you are just, you appreciate the fact that you exist right now, right here, with these people. The older I get, the more and more I have those moments. And it's almost an out-of-body experience where I'm sitting at a table with somebody or doing something, and I, I see myself with doing this thing or with these other people. And I am very thankful for life and existence that God has given me. I love my family. I love the cool fall morning air in a hunting stand. I love my beautiful wife who lights up the room with her smile. I love my son and my daughter. You know, ever heard seen this show Meat Eater? Nobody? Okay. It's a hunting show. Uh, and uh, we, we like Meat Eater, me and Wesley. We watch it and and you know, they'll kill an elk, and then they'll chop it up, and they'll, they'll start a fire, and then they'll take some of the elk and they'll cook it on, the, on, the, on an open flame, and they'll eat that, and they'll talk about it, and we love that. And so yesterday, um, Nydia had a wedding, but she uh, very kindly had chicken laid out for us and uh, everything I needed to do, but we decided to turn it into a meat-eater dinner. So I took Wes and Elise outside, we made a fire in our little fire pit, and we cooked this chicken over an open flame like men. And, um, but it's, it's things like that that just make me appreciate, appreciate life. I mean, I was sitting there with my, my son and my daughter eating chicken that had been charred by the smoke that we were cooking it over, and. We were just talking about life and pretending we were out in the wild. And Wesley, what? Oh, yeah. So, enjoy, enjoy the life that God has given to you. Um, and this is, this is biblical. Because not only is this 
Solomon saying this, but we see this in the New Testament by Paul. He says in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So God has given you good things. Seek to cultivate a life and a, a posture which enjoys them. And, and seize the day to enjoy it, too. Have meat-eater dinners with your family. Love your wife in all the various ways that a man should. Hunters, savor the time. Basically, I think I'm just talking to me and Todd, right, at this point. <laughs> I could just preach this sermon to him. Todd, let's save the time going out hunting and fishing. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot a deer this year. I'm going to butcher it with my dad in his basement in a log cabin in Worthboro. That's going to be a good time. So, all of this is important to understand that God has given us life, and we are to enjoy that. I, I would preach half a sermon if I started there. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to preach another half. But I do want to draw your mind to the fact that even this, even the wonders of life are temporary. There's, there's a book called The Stuff of Earth, or The Things of Earth, by Joe Rigney which talks about enjoying life, what I've been talking about. God has given you the stuff of earth to enjoy. Joe Rigney worked for Desiring God a few years ago, which is John Piper's ministry, and he was walking by John Piper's office. And um, while he was writing the book, he said to John Piper, you know, what do you, think about, what do you think about this paragraph about enjoying life? And he read him a paragraph about enjoying root beer, enjoying roller coasters and hunting and fishing and John Piper which is why I love him John Piper looked at him and said and then you die <laughs> I love the ultimacy in a man like that because this is all fading away it's true and then we die so I, what a secular sermon it would be if I just said hey guys go enjoy life I would be like Koheleth without a full-orbed hope. So, don't just enjoy life. It is fleeting. But no, remember that Christ has made promises not just about this life, but a life to come. Jesus said to her, that is Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, why can you have confidence in that? Because Christ rose from the dead and made these promises, and we can trust him entirely with our internal souls. So it is not true, like Kohelis says in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 9, that death is superior, or that life is superior to death. Now, we're not just waiting to die. We, should, we can enjoy life. But the Apostle Paul, 
in virtue of faith in Jesus Christ who has conquered death, says, I am hard-pressed between whether to choose to die or to live. Now there's a man of faith. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better. So as you think about your vain and fleeting life, which it is, also think about the fact that in Christ, there is an eternity and open doors. So we know much better than Koheleth does. We can feel raw realities, and we can take some of the wisdom that God allowed to be in his scripture, but we can also run to Jesus. What did we sing today? We sang, um, oh, we're a mist that vanishes at dawn. That's so true. But then on that day, we will see him shining brighter than the sun. Here's, here's what Paul says, and basically he's summarizing Kohela. Now we know in part. We see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. May your heart be warmed and encouraged by the fact that Jesus Christ made promises that he intends to keep for your soul. Let's close in a word of prayer.